0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation
1: Actually being able to experience the materials properties that I knew about theoretically um, really brought material science alive for me. So when I was trying glass blowing, to feel the, the glass transition, when glass goes from being a solid to more like a liquid, when it gets runnier and runnier with temperature, I knew all the theories of that, but I'd never felt it before. And actually being able to feel that science happening really brought it all alive for me.
0: That's Anna Poshieski. With a Ph.D. in material science from Oxford University, she was fluent in the atomic and quantum mechanical details that determine the properties of materials, materials like glass and steel and wood. But she wanted more. She wanted the experience of how those materials feel and behave, how creative people use them. The book she wrote about her exploration is called Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning through making this is going to be really interesting for me because i am fascinated with this subject that you you're devoting your life to and it turns out that you're devoting your life to something that not a lot of people understand or have even heard of is that right
1: yeah, absolutely. So I'm a material scientist, and even I hadn't really heard of material science when I first got into it. Um, but I've discovered that it's this wonderful world at the intersection between engineering and science, but also subjects like design and craft, which is the subject of this book. Um, so it's a, it's a really wonderful world to explore all sorts of different sides, but with a focus on materials.
0: So just so I don't say it wrong, why don't you explain what material science is.
1: So I always describe material science really as being in the middle of the Venn diagram between engineering, chemistry and physics, because we have to know about the very intricate science, the very intricate physics about materials, things like what makes glass transparent is all to do with quantum mechanics and how atoms are made, but we also have to know about the chemistry of how metals mix together and form what we call alloys and how to design those to be better. And we know about engineering as well. We're interested in material selection, you know, what makes a certain material good for one job and not for another. So it's this really lovely blend of quite hardcore science, but also with real world applications in engineering.
0: For me, when I, when I first started to hear about material science, I think the first thing that interested me was the piezoelectric effect. Oh, yeah. Now, I said that just so I can sound smart, but I'll leave it for you to describe <laughs> what the piezoelectric effect is
1: it's a really mind-blowing phenomenon um it was first discovered by um, pierre and jacques curie actually the husband and brother-in-law of Marie curie um right. in the 1800s and they realized or they sort of discovered this amazing phenomenon whereby if you take a crystal of quartz and you squash it a bit then a really small electric voltage appears across it and they also did discovered that the reverse is also true. When you apply an electric voltage across a crystal of quartz, then it moves ever so slightly. So piezoelectricity... It, get, it gets
0: unsquished. It unsquished, it gets, exactly.
1: It, yeah. <laughs> so this effect of piezoelectricity is the conversion of electricity to mechanical motion by materials.
0: The properties of materials that can change, like a crystal when you squash it, is not a new thing, apparently. I learned from you in a talk you gave that pyramids 4,000 years ago were built with mortar that was self-healing.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Right? So if it got a crack in it from the weather or something, it would close up. How, how did that work? And did, mm. did, did they know what they were doing? Or did they stumble upon it or what?
1: I don't think we know whether the ancient Egyptians knew that they were using this sort of smart material lime mortar in their pyramids but it was very lucky that they did because they might not be standing today if they hadn't have used this stuff um and it's all to do with as you say the mortar that they put in between the stones to build these pyramids and this lime mortar is able to react with the atmosphere and with the environment so in the situation where a crack forms in this sort of concrete like material um, water and carbon dioxide from the air is able to infiltrate into that crack and it reacts with the material to form calcium carbonate, which is f- effectively limestone. And this limestone grows into the crack to heal it, to, so that the crack disappears. Um, so this amazing material, this self-healing material, was um, yeah used on Egyptian pyramids thousands of years ago.
0: Seems to me the future uses of material science, especially smart materials is going to open up the door to unheard of advances. One thing it would sounds like it would be great to do, I don't think we have it yet, is a smart fabric that makes you warmer when you're cold and colder when you're warm. It insulates you better when you're cold. That doesn't exist yet, does it?
1: There are materials that would be able to do that, you know, shape changing materials that react to body temperature to make your coat more or less insulating. Um, shape memory polymers already exist i think the barrier to entry can often be collaboration between material scientists that have got this cool stuff on the lab bench with designers out there in the real world who can turn that material into a viable product um i've had experience in my own work of um of working with clothing designers and it was a fascinating exercise or realization really about how different the languages that we speak are and the different expectations that we have of what's possible between sort of a scientific side and an artistic side. And it was this intersection between art and science that I think is a really brilliant, um, materials is a really brilliant arena in which to explore those differences and similarities. And it was that interplay between art and science that I wanted to, um, to look into in this book as well.
0: The book is handmade, and it's a really interesting example of good communication. Thank you. Because, and I, I've heard you talk about this, you didn't present yourself as the expert, but as, a, in a way, a co-traveller with the reader. But you actually understood something for the first time about material that you, that you explore in the book, I think.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the, the story of the book is the story of my kind of rediscovery of materials, the the realisation right at the start came about because I was supposed to be this expert in material science, right? I had my PhD, you know, I was, I was an academic researcher. I was going out to the public and telling people that I was an expert in material science. And yet I didn't have the first clue about how these materials really behave under the hand or um, how... Craftspeople people use these materials or how designers think about materials or what's important to an artist about clay, which might be different from how I think about clay as a material scientist, for example. So it was this realisation that I suddenly felt like a fraud and I really wasn't the expert in all areas of material science. I knew my bit. I knew the theories on paper, but I had no idea how to throw a pot on a potter's wheel or forge um, a piece of steel in a blacksmith's workshop. and. Therefore, I felt like a fraud, and so I wanted to really get my hands on these materials and finally understand them in their kind of full glory, really, not just the stuff that I found interesting on paper, but how they behave in real life.
0: That's an interesting application of basic ideas and communication. You were listening to the people who threw the pot, Hmm. putting yourself in the shoes of that person and getting a a different understanding of, of the work you did every day. Did that understanding change in any way? Was it just a good experience or did it in any way inform the work you do? Did it give you uh, ideas that you wouldn't have had before? Anything like that?
1: Definitely. So at the kind of smallest level, I think actually being able to experience the materials properties that I knew about theoretically um really brought material science alive for me so when I was trying glass blowing to feel the the glass transition when glass goes from being a solid to more like a liquid when it gets runnier and runnier with temperature, I knew all the theories of that but I'd never felt it before and actually being able to feel that science happening really brought it all alive for me. But in terms of my own work in the lab as well, the stuff that I learned from the craftspeople that I spoke to, Um, and the crafts that I was able to have a go at did actually inform some of my own academic research. So at the time I was working on these um, shape-changing fabrics and smart fabrics, which we touched upon earlier. Um, It was using ideas that I'd learned from a plastics researcher who'd built his own extruder, um, that I was able to sort of modify the 3D printer that I was using and tweak the temperatures and assess what needed to change in order to make my experiment work. I also learned about the structure of textiles from knitters and people that do crochet and and know about fabrics in a way that I really didn't know anything at all about as a material scientist. But I was able to use that information to inform my experiments. So it's really not only broadened my appreciation of materials from an artistic perspective, but has positively impacted my scientific research as well.
0: It really, really sounds like you immersed yourself in the hands-on part of your work and you got in touch with your work in a way you hadn't before. The glass blowing, for instance, you, you talk about how it had an effect on your life, something to do with your work in the lab, which interested me because when I tried to study chemistry once and did miserably, the worst thing about it was that I had had to know how to crack glass pipettes in half right and I had bloody fingers oh. after every class oh no <laughs> i couldn't handle the handwork part yeah so how did it change your life to be working in the glass blowing place
1: that's a really interesting example, actually, because historically, scientists were supposed to be very good glass blowers and glass workers because so often we had to invent new apparatus for our particular experiments. Mm. Um, and it's why, you know, most academic chemistry departments now will have resident glass blowers to make this stuff by hand. Oh, I
0: didn't know that. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. And. It's, it's a craft that is so intertwined with science. That was what fascinated me. And it's, it's the chapter that starts the book because it sits so perfectly at this intersection between science and, you know, why we use glass in the sciences because it's got this beautiful transparency so we can see our experiments bubbling away in there. It's... Um, really doesn't react chemically with very many substances at all it's got a very high melting temperature so we can subject it to all sorts of you know temperatures and chemicals and it's effectively impervious to a lot of them and yet because this stuff is so ubiquitous in science you know in our chemistry laboratories we have beakers and petri dishes and funnels and glass everywhere we don't really think about it as as being this amazing substance that allows us to do the experiments that we do but It's not so long ago in history that the glass that we were using wasn't quite suitable for a lot of the temperatures that we were using. And so chemists had to get interested in glass and what what glass is made of and its materials properties in order to solve this problem, which was thermal shock in their glassware. And it was solved eventually by a guy called Otto Schott, a German glassmaker, which gave us the material that we now call Pyrex.
0: Can you answer a question for me that plagues me every time I look through a piece of glass? Sure. How come I can look through a piece of glass? Because it's got atoms in it. And if you put enough of them together, isn't there something there that blocks your vision?
1: Yeah, I mean, you've tapped upon one of the most interesting and intricate pieces of science um, that I feature in the book, which is why is glass transparent? Um, And it's transparent for very... Um, very scientific reasons. You mentioned that glass is made of atoms. Um, Lots and lots of, well, all other materials are made of atoms as well, but they're not all transparent. The reason that glass is transparent is, there's several reasons. The first is that the atoms inside glass are not in any kind of structural order. So in contrast, let's take a piece of metal, a piece of metal, is um, made up of what we call crystals, and inside a crystal is where all of the atoms are lined up in a very neat and ordered structure. So if you were to zoom in and see what the atoms are doing, you'd see them all in rows and columns in this sort of 3D lattice-like structure. But that's very predictable, it's very uniform, um, and it's very neat and tidy. But most metal objects aren't made of one single crystal. They're mostly made of sometimes millions, sometimes even billions of crystals, all sort of shoved together. <laughs> um, and the the difference between each one and its neighbor is the fact that it's sort of angled at a different angle. So they're all sort of shoved in there together. Each crystal itself has got a lot of atomic order, but between itself and its neighbor, there is no order to that. Um, And in between those two crystals inside your metal um, is a grain boundary. The crystals are called grains. And those boundaries, um, when a bit of light shines on that material, those grain boundaries can scatter the light. Um, Glass, on the other hand, is not made of crystals. It's made of um, atoms that are all jumbled up in a really disordered structural way. And because glass doesn't have grain boundaries, doesn't have crystals, it's able to to allow light just to pass straight through rather than being reflected at those grain boundaries.
0: I learned from playing Richard Feynman in a play that some percentage of the photons pass through the glass and some percentage bounce back, Mm. reflected off the glass. And the question Feynman asks in the play is, how does each individual photon know which way to go?
1: (laughs) So we're now, yeah, we're now looking at the kind of quantum mechanics of glass. Um, And yeah, if you imagine the atom, uh, often when we think about the structure of atoms, you know, in our mind, we have this big central nucleus, which is where your neutrons and your protons are. And then very nearby, you've you've got this idea that there are electrons orbiting round. We think of that in our Mm. school science lessons as how the atom exists, but that's actually very very inaccurate in if we just look at kind of the proportional size of what's going on there in actuality if you imagine um a small pea like a garden pea that you would have on your on your dinner um, if you imagine that as the size of the nucleus, then the atom itself would be the size of a football stadium.
0: We're, we're, and the electrons so, are way out at the edges of the football stadium.
1: Way out at the edges. Yeah. And, and they're kind of the size of a grain of sand, if you can imagine that mm. compared to the pea. Um, this is vastly empty space. Listeners will will kind of have an idea that the atom is is mostly empty space, but it really is. You know, these Subatomic particles are really, really tiny. So, when we think about a photon coming in, a photon, a particle of light coming in to hit glass, the probability that it's actually going to interact with one of those charged particles, a proton or an electron, is already very slim, just because most of the atom is empty space. So, most of the time, those photons can just pass straight through. But some of them, of course, are going to come a little bit closer to the electrons and to the protons. And When we talk about photons, we think of them in this example as being electromagnetic waves. And when they pass something like an electron, which is also an electromagnetic, also has electromagnetic properties, they're going to interact. Sometimes that means that the photon sort of glances off and changes angle. And sometimes it means that the photon is absorbed by the atom Mm. and re-emitted as well. Um, and that's all to do with the, the energy levels inside that atom, which is all to do with how the atoms are bonded together and their place on the periodic table. Um, it's it's an incredibly involved scientific explanation um, for a property as simple and as everyday as transparency.
0: That's great. Thank you for going through that for me. I only need to hear these same words several hundred times before <laughs> I get a glimmer. And you. You've given me a a much brighter glimmer this
1: time. Oh, good.
0: When we come back from our break, Anna Puszyzewski tells me why she decided to swim from England to France and what she learned about the power of sugar along the way. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters and interacts with science and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Anna Puszynski. I'm very interested in scientists who do unusual things in addition to the unusual things they do as scientists. <laughs> and I've heard that you swam the English Channel. You, you swam to France. Why is that? Because you're afraid of flying to France? <laughs>
1: On a side note, I I am afraid of flying, but the channel swim was more of a personal challenge. <laughs> um I, I thought I could probably do it, so I decided to give it a go.
0: And you learned something about your science in the process. What was that?
1: I mean, I learned so much about myself on that with that experience, but
0: I can imagine.
1: The scientific side was the discovery about the material of sugar and what sugar is as a substance as a cultural force, as a placebo on the mind, as a source of energy for the body. Um, because, of course, when we do huge endurance events like this, the main thing that the body needs is energy. And on an event like a Swim, we call upon sugar as that energy source.
0: Now you took sugar while you were swimming, but in in what form? You just gobbled down cubes of sugar, or or, or did you have pancakes? What did what did you do?
1: I had a huge range of different types of sugar, um, and scientifically that's interesting because sugar is you know a family of molecules. It's not just a single one. But on my channel swim, every hour I was stopped to drink a sugary sort of carbohydrate-based drink where the molecules of the sugar were very long. So it took my body time to break them down and that was a slow-release burst of energy. But then I also enjoyed very quick-release sugars like sucrose, which are very small molecules, very easy for the body to break those down. And that was in the form of things like um, chocolate cake, Battenberg cake, I don't know if you have that in the States, Um Sort of uh, marzipan, very, very sugary, um, jelly babies, sweeties, all this sort of stuff. It was. <laughs> Swimming
0: um, the English Channel with jelly babies <laughs> is an image I won't forget.
1: <laughs> it was a tasting menu throughout the sugary family of, of molecules.
0: <laughs> it's interesting. Sugar is, I'm told by nutritionists, not good mm. for us, and yet it's been a really powerful force in our history, tied to slavery and...
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of these substances that has such a kind of duality in the sense that we we love it, we crave it, um, it's delicious, it, it is associated with innocence and femininity and um, sort of how goodness. How so femininity? I mean, in, in, in this country we have a phrase which is sugar and spice and all things nice.
0: Yeah, we have that too.
1: Um, which is to describe little girls and when when you think about endearing names that you would call your sweetheart it's things like honey sugar um it's often sweet Mm. sweet things cupcake
0: sweetheart sweetheart itself
1: sweetheart is another one which is so interesting so it is associated with good feelings and love um but as you say it also has this incredibly dark side of being one of the major materials that fueled the transatlantic slave trade it brought unimaginable wealth therefore to the europeans um who then funded their entire industrial revolution um there was it's got this really sinister history um and continues today to be um, problematic in certain areas of the world um, in areas that aren't protected by fair trade laws Um, there's still exploitation of people in the sugar industry Um, and yet we can't get enough of it it's this really interesting problematic, alluring dangerous material
0: I was thinking as you were talking about the terms of endearment one in particular like honey it's a term of true endearment between a, usually, except unless the tone is different, like honey, you know, <laughs> less endearing. But usually between a couple, yeah. it's a term of endearment. But it, in between a boss and a secretary or a boss and a female assistant, honey right. is treading on the dark side of sugar.
1: It is, yeah, much less welcome.
0: When you mentioned that, it made me wonder, mm. what's been your experience as a woman scientist? Mm. How much how much honey have you been exposed to? <laughs>
1: That's a really good question. Um, it's been mixed for me, to be honest. I've had experiences in all-female scientific research teams. I did a stint over at the NASA Kennedy Space Center in Florida, where it was an all-female team, Um I have been part of mixed gender teams that have been nothing but encouraging and welcoming and supportive and respectful. And then I've also had more negative experiences as well um, as a junior academic member of staff, um, experiencing sexism and, and bullying as well. So it's been a mixed bag for me.
0: How do you handle it?
1: I'm a very determined person. <laughs> it takes a lot of determination to swim the English channel and I'm not one to um, to give up on stuff as hard as it may be. Um, the English channel definitely taught me that and my my experiences as an academic being you know bullied in the lab taught me that as well. Um, I also dealt with it by finding allies elsewhere um so finding allies of mm. other women in the department or in other departments who sort of had shared experiences and finding solidarity in those groups as well.
0: You know, in this series of shows we've done, all of which were with women scientists, what I hear Mm. over and over, which I don't think I heard 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Mm. the determination of women to lend a helping hand to those on the way up behind them, to mentor them. Do you find yourself doing that?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I've certainly found myself on the receiving end of mentoring. Um, There have been a couple of occasions where I've been able to, like you say, um, lend a hand to someone coming up the ladder behind me. I did a talk a few years ago about material science to some high school students. And a girl came up to me afterwards and said, material science sounds really interesting. I'd love to hear more. I gave her my email address. um, And we exchanged a couple of messages. And then I didn't hear anything from her again. And a year or so later she emailed me out of the blue and said that as a result of hearing my talk and listening to my podcast she had applied to Oxford to study material science and had just finished her first term there.
0: Mm. And oh, that's great.
1: That just makes it all worthwhile. Yeah.
0: We shouldn't close without talking about your podcast mm-hmm. Handmade. Same title as your book. Yeah. And just as in the book, you don't interview only scientists. You you, you talk to craftspeople. People who come in contact with the materials as well. Mm. What's your goal with the podcast? What do you hope the listeners will get out of it?
1: My goal with the podcast is to show that this idea that we have of a scientist and the idea that we have of an artist can be very distinct and they can speak different languages and do very different things. But through materials, actually, they there was also a lot of similarities. Um, one of my favourite examples is an interview that I did with a silversmith called John Cussell. And he was describing his processes of silversmithing to me. Um, you know, the tools that he uses, the processes that he has to work the silver with. And he described to me that when you hit silver a lot, or when you bend a piece of silver too much, the atoms inside become angry. And when they become angry, the material becomes Mm -hmm. brittle and it can break. Um, And that really stuck with me because it's such a beautiful expression of what happens to the material, which is that it gets hot and it gets brittle and it can break very easily. Um, In my language, I would call that cold working the material. Um, But calling it, You know, saying that the atoms are getting angry, it it does the same thing. And I thought it was a beautiful illustration of how you don't necessarily need to have all of the right scientific terms if you understand the material and how it works and what's going on inside. Um, And these different ways of talking about it are just two equally as valid languages to use about this one shared substance of materials.
0: Yeah, to me, that's the vivid part of clear and vivid, because you can be totally clear using only one kind of term from one language like the science yeah. language but you can also be more vivid if you include the language of common speech as long as you make sure you stay accurate exactly and you have a tremendous reliance on story as a way to communicate you're really in touch with the people listening
1: that storytelling aspect was so important to me in the podcast and the book because I don't believe that science itself is actually inherently interesting, <laughs> which shocks quite a lot of people as a as a scientist myself. I don't believe that it's inherently interesting and I don't believe that every member of the public should be interested in science. Um, what I think is interesting and what I think that the majority of people find interesting is the implications of science, is what it means for their everyday lives. Um, you know, we were talking about the quantum mechanics of glass earlier. The interaction between a photon and an electron in glass isn't inherently interesting. But what's interesting about it is that that is why glass is transparent and glass is transparent. And so we use it in all of these interesting ways in, in science and in culture and in architecture and all these other things. So I really wanted to show to To not allow the science to dominate in this book and in this podcast, I wanted the stories to be what drove the narrative through. And all of those stories are not scientific stories; they're human stories about my life, about my heritage, about my channel swim, about my love for the trumpet, about my love for science. Um, and yeah, I really hope that that will bring in other audiences who aren't necessarily self defining as people that are already interested in science.
0: Does your interviewing style? reflect that human interest you seem to have?
1: I hope so, because what I'm trying to do is to find out from the person what makes them tick. Um, Uh So I, I quite often start with finding out about, you know, their childhood, their upbringing. What was their influence? Why did they end up as a spoon maker? You know, was it their family that introduced them to wood? I really want to know the genesis of that person. And when we talk about the materials and processes, yes, I'm interested in those, but I'm also mostly interested in why does that person choose to do that you know what's the personal decisions going on here is it a how do they feel about it what's their opinion i want to know not only the the facts of what they do but also why they do what they do and really dig into why making is important to them so it's it's all about the human in front of me
0: I don't know if I've helped you show what makes you tick, but you certainly have been ticking during this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. And I've loved talking with you. Before we go, we always end with seven quick questions. Okay. Can you remember what the first thing was that you were ever curious about?
1: My dad will tell you an anecdote, which is that I was very, very little. And I said to him, if something was nothing, then what would be something?
0: (laughs) How old were you when you said
1: that? <laughs> maybe three years old.
0: <laughs> wow. And,
1: and and he likes to think that this is me, you know, asking the great questions about the universe. I was probably just asking about, you know, why have I finished my dinner or something. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I was wondering about the vacuum of the universe.
0: <laughs> That's pretty good. So what made you want to be a scientist
1: When I was at school, I toyed between being a musician and being a scientist. It could have gone either way for me.
0: What was your instrument? Trumpet. Trumpet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I very nearly went to music college to go and be a professional trumpet player. What clinched it for me was that um, I could always play the trumpet. I would always have that. I could always do that. But I couldn't always be a scientist unless I went down that route. And the the allure of the sciences is... um, is the possibilities, the, the places that it can lead you, the adventures it can take you on. Um, and I've been lucky enough to go on lots and lots of adventures as a scientist, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I made the right choice.
0: Next question fits right in. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I love communicating it to other people, be it mm. members of the public, be it my academic peers at a conference. Um, I love telling those stories um, of the science and really kind of making them come alive. That's my favourite bit, yeah.
0: So as a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had?
1: It was the only eureka moment I've ever had in my scientific career. There's been one. (laughs) And it was um, during my PhD when I was researching these materials that were patented by a company. They knew that they worked as hydrogen storage materials so these are substances that contain hydrogen for um, powering things like um, uh, hydrogen fuel cells mm. to power a hydrogen car. Let's say um, these materials have been patented; they were known to work, but it wasn't know how, known how they worked. So my whole PhD was: we've got this thing; tell us how it works. And I, it was it was these two substances mixed together into a composite material, and. We didn't know what what it was about the interaction between those two things that made the material so good at what it did, so good as a hydrogen storage material. And in one of these experiments we had um, called differential scanning calorimetry <laughs> for any scientist listening, essentially what it is is you put your material in a machine You heat it up and it will tell you if there's any exothermic or endothermic reactions happening. So if the material is giving out heat or taking in heat. Essentially what was happening was we were putting our material in this instrument. It was telling us that there was a melting happening. But Mm. that melting temperature was at completely different temperatures to the two components that were in the material. So it was as if when we mix these two materials together, it created a completely separate substance, right? Like if you mixed paper and stone together it created steel. <laughs> it was it was that weird. It was so odd. We didn't know where this extra peak was coming from. And I just remember Googling something. It, it was something to do with, um, you know, what happens when you combine a polymer and, and another molecule into a crystal? Because I knew that there was a crystal melting in there. And it came up with this term co-crystal or, or molecular crystal. And all of a sudden... I saw these scientific papers coming at me, you know, one after another after another on my computer screen. And it was showing the same graph that I had in my research. And I'd never seen it before. And all of a sudden, now that I knew the search term, I could tell exactly what was going on inside my material, exactly what sort of material it was, um, how it was formed, why it was formed, what it was likely to do. Um, And that for me, that aha moment of this is a molecular crystal. Now I know what to do with it. Was was just such an exciting moment.
0: That great moment of suddenly understanding, suddenly knowing. Yeah, it's a great moment. What was the worst moment in science for you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I've smashed a lot of equipment. <laughs> I've broken quite a lot of instruments.
0: <laughs> so you, you you have a lot of bad moments.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, in that's the same with any sort of. Um, experimental career we do big experiments at particle accelerators um, to try and use very high energy x-rays to look into our materials it can take you a day and a half to set up for the experiment the experiment itself needs you know 24 hours of exposure to the x-rays to make sure that you get enough information you needed and at the end of those few days you can go back into the room and have a look at your data and maybe the material's fallen off onto the floor or you didn't open the shutter. or (laughs) You've wasted a lot of time. Those (laughs) moments are really disheartening. But they're they're, they're what make the good moments worth it as well.
0: (laughs) So what gives you confidence?
1: That's a great question. I think I'm lucky enough to have quite a strong sense of self-belief. And that comes from, I think, a lifetime of Um, being privileged enough to have been, you know, given the amazing scientific education that I've been able to have access to. um, I've been Mm. able, I've been able to be successful partly because of the people around me, um, because of the support that I've had from family and friends. Um, And that's given me this sense of self belief that if I want something and I want to, you know, go for it and try it, then, then I'll hopefully be successful. And, and I think yeah, a lifetime of of having that reinforced. I'm very lucky that that I've had that reinforced. And so, um, yeah, I do always have this sense that anything is possible.
0: Okay, last question. And we've been talking about this all throughout. Mm -hmm. How can we help people, more people, enjoy a love of science?
1: Well, I hope by writing books like mine... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which which really puts storytelling front and center and, and draws them in through stories rather than science. I think it's also such a shame that we silo off scientific education into university establishments and that that limits the number of people that have access to science, um, partly through their you know, their life circumstances. Um, but also it's a branding issue for science as well. You know, I've had so many amazing experiences working as a scientist that, and I don't think that is celebrated enough or advertised enough. Um, it's also about who thinks they can do science, who's got an idea in their head about um, who who is allowed to be a scientist. Um, you know, there's research to suggest that by the age of five, girls... And boys already have an idea of what careers are appropriate or expected of them. Um, Ditto with um, race and socioeconomics, and that's a real damning indictment of our society in that we we give these children these ideas so early. And so it's to do with um, having strong role models. It's to do with lowering the barriers to entry, Um, and yeah, it's to do with bringing everyone into science because everybody does have a place in science.
0: Well, I really have enjoyed this conversation with you. you. You're you're doing exactly what you're hoping will happen in bringing, pe- bringing people to science and science to people. And I I'm I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Anna.
1: Thank you, Alan. It's been great to chat to you.
0: This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Anna Poshieski's book, recounting her adventures learning about both materials and herself, is called Handmade, a Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making. And be sure to check out her weekly podcast, also called Handmade. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chemay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.